Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow! Nice! Yeah! What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Kellen, if you got to pick the one way not to die, what would that one way be? Or in other words, what would be your least preferred way to die? Oh, yikes. Oh, man, that could turn really dark and gruesome really quick. As a kid, I had a book called Would You Rather? And it was full of all these absolutely bizarre questions. Like, would you rather have four foot long hair growing from your back or from your forehead? And that one seems obvious. Is it? Well, I guess if it's growing from your forehead, is it like in your normal hairline? Because then it's just you grow out the rest of your hair with it and you have long hair. Or is it like the middle of your forehead? Does that change your answer? It, absolutely. If it's in the middle of my forehead, I'll put it in my back and braid it and wear a shirt over it. <laughs> See, these are the kind of weird questions that are asking this book. But sometimes there were these really cringy, painful ones. Like, oh, would you rather go down a slide of razor blades into a pit of vinegar? Or would you rather, I don't know, I, I'm not going to even try to remember what they were because they're so gross. I already want to pick the other one, <laughs> whatever it is, because that slide sounds terrible. Anyways, if I step back from the more imaginative ways to die... And just think of things that I guess are a little more typical. I think I would absolutely hate to drown. Why is that? Are you sure this is how we want to start this episode? I'm just curious. I mean... I don't know. There's just that feeling not being able to breathe and, and that panic and the pain in your chest. and Yeah, some anxiety for sure. Yeah, and I'm sure you'd be panicking with so many other ways to die. But now please help me understand... <laughs> Why I asked you this question? Yeah, where are we going with this? 
Well, first let me answer for myself. For me, I've heard burning alive is a pretty terrible way to go. <laughs> you've heard that? What do you mean, like, you've heard that from somebody who's gone through it? Well, obviously, obviously not. I've just heard it's a particularly gruesome death. But I guess, yeah, there's not really anyone that can vouch for that. I mean, in all reality, there's not someone that can really compare all the different ways to die because they would have only experienced one and they wouldn't be around to tell about it. But for some reason, I get like this particular anxiety about picturing myself getting impaled by something, like whether that's shot with an arrow or stabbed. But the one that always sticks with me is, and it's been portrayed in many different TV shows, is getting impaled by like a fence post, like in a car accident or something. There's a Grey's Anatomy one where the fence post flies through the windshield and like goes right through them and pins them to the, the chair. Or there's an episode of Yellowstone where this federal agent falls off a horse and onto a fence post. Man, this is so violent. This is a podcast about the death of civilization so this isn't that big of a deal all right keep going one of the reasons that that death seems so terrible to me is you've got this foreign object this foreign body inside you but you're not supposed to remove it right they say like okay yeah if, if we're to remove this fence post from you right now you're gonna bleed out and so there's this dual panic of like i've got it in me and it shouldn't be there but also i can't take it out or i'll die immediately and the reason that i bring this up is because society has found itself impaled by a fence post, sort of a, a catch-22, if you were, in that it's gotten itself into a situation where it's sort of a damned if you do, damned if you don't. No matter what choices society makes at this point, there's going to be severe and harsh consequences. And that was a really roundabout and gruesome way of introducing the topic of today's episode, which is the global dimming paradox. Man, that really was quite a way to introduce it. <laughs> I hope none of our listeners are queasy. I was thinking more the comparison of like heartburn medicine that is also causing you ulcers. And so you don't want to stop taking it, but it's causing you damage. Yeah, that might have been a better one. Should we, <laughs> should we restart the episode and go with yours? No, let's keep going. <laughs> so the global dimming paradox, it's been called a lot of different things. It's a catch-22. It's a paradox. There's an article specifically about it called The Devil's Bargain. And no matter what anecdote you use or comparison, you know, it's like we're climbing a ladder higher and higher. And the only way to get off the ladder is to jump. You can't climb back down. And so our choices are to either jump off to our death or climb higher and higher, which leads to a more certain death, right? Well, like many things in this collapse conversation, the terminology isn't necessarily intuitive. When you hear global dimming, if you've never heard that before, it deserves an explanation. So maybe tell us what it is. Yeah, a lot of people in the collapse sphere are hyper aware of this. It's sort of one of those things that's talked about pretty often, maybe not fully understood. So I'm glad we got to do some, some further research into it. But global dimming is basically just the idea that as we pollute the atmosphere. Obviously, as we know, many of those pollutants are causing us to warm up greenhouse gases like CO2 or methane. But along with those greenhouse gases, we also emit aerosols. And some of those aerosols actually act to increase albedo, which if you remember from previous episodes is the reflectivity of sunlight. So they actually act as a coolant. So basically, our industrialization is causing simultaneously both warming and cooling to take place in the atmosphere. The net effect is warming. But the paradox of all of this is if we were to stop all industrial activity, we would also lose that cooling effect and we'd end up losing it much faster than we'd lose the heating effect 
which would actually cause a fairly rapid increase in the overall global temperature. Yeah, so basically what you're saying is that there are certain emissions, certain pollutants that we're putting into the atmosphere that cause that greenhouse effect, that cause warming. There are others that increase the reflectivity and therefore provide a cooling effect. The ones that cause warming stay in the atmosphere for a long time. The ones that cause cooling drop out pretty quick. So if we were just to stop all emissions, we wouldn't get the benefit of those pollutants that are causing the cooling effect, and we would continue to have all that warming without the offset from the cooling that we've been benefiting from. Yeah, that's exactly right. It, you know, if you think about, we've done a whole episode on geoengineering, right? Solar radiation management, which is just this idea that one day we're going to have to resort to purposely putting aerosols into the atmosphere in order to cool the earth down. If you didn't listen to that episode, I recommend going back and listening to it. But yeah, it's basically this idea of, of doing purposefully what we've done all along with emitting these greenhouse gases in order to help cool the planet. And one part of what you just mentioned is really important to this whole Catch-22, and it's the fact that the aerosols stay in the atmosphere for so much less time than CO2 or methane would. And there's a lot of consequences to this. You know, you think about how hard it is to convince people of the need to decarbonize, whether that's to hit net zero, whether it's to just slow the amount of emissions at all, or whether it's to completely degrow, like we talked about in the last episode, we're failing at all of that. There's not enough of a collective will or drive or understanding to make that happen. But then you throw on top of that the knowledge that, oh, and by the way, if we do decarbonize, things are also going to get worse for a while and potentially indefinitely uh, because we'll talk about this in a minute, but because the rapid increase in temperature could also cause other feedback loops and tipping points that may be irreversible. Yeah, there are some huge implications here, but I think it's worth calling out that this is a complex topic and there's been a lot of argument and conflict about this. It's a little bit controversial. And after doing all the research that I've done on it, a good way to summarize the reason why is simply because we're still learning. There's a lot that we don't know. And while there's a lot that you and I don't know, Kellen, you're specifically, when you say we, you're talking more about the scientific community, society as a whole, correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Thank you. You know, one of these pollutants that is called out often as, as having this dimming effect is sulfate aerosols. And not only do the particles themselves cause some of that reflection of the sun's energy, but also water molecules coalesce around those particles and form water droplets. And so you get clouds and clouds increase that albedo effect that you talked about. But, you know, we talk about it as global dimming. And by the way, the reverse, you might hear us mention global brightening, but global can be a little bit of a misnomer because it can be very regional, right? In industrialized areas where we're putting up a lot more of these pollutants, it has a stronger effect. And it's complicated further by things like how high in the atmosphere these particles are. Or when we talk about the impacts of decreasing emissions, a lot of that depends on how quickly we decrease emissions. You know, if there's some sort of a global event where suddenly all travel and all industrial activity is halted, that's very different from if we're gradually reducing emissions. And some of these pollutants, you know, cool during the day by reflecting sunlight, but they also kind of trap heat in and they, they decrease 
heat loss at nighttime. So I don't think we're going to dive into all the details there, but I'm just trying to paint the picture that it's a complicated topic. There's a lot of different ways to look at it and research kind of comes from different angles in trying to approach it. But there is a lot of evidence that there could be some catastrophic heating impacts to us just suddenly stopping emissions. I've seen people try and oversimplify this, right? And say, no matter what we do, because of global dimming, the temperature is going to rise by a degree Celsius if we try and deindustrialize. And and everything that you've just explained, you know, it can really change the trajectory of how that heating happens, how much heating happens, where that heating happens. And so it's important to keep all those things in mind. So with that being said, as mentioned, the timeline that we lower emissions in will change the effect that dimming has on the planet. So the faster that we cut emissions, the higher the spike in overall temperature would be. And the longer we draw out that reduction in emissions, the smoother the transition would be. Studies have shown, though, that it would dramatically increase the amount of time required to reach, for example, the Paris Climate Agreement targets, meaning we'd likely miss them altogether. So if you think about a slow decline in emissions, over the course of that slow decline, it's actually drawing that out and flattening that out as far as how quickly the temperature decreases. So whereas without dimming, we might say, okay, if we can slowly cut out CO2 emissions, then over a certain amount of time, the temperature will decrease. Well, because of global dimming, because we're actually removing some of that cooling along the way, it's just stretching that line out further and meaning it's going to be that much longer to hit those decrease in temperature targets. In a rapid decrease in industrial activity, we're actually likely to see the temperature increase. And it would happen in a relatively short amount of time. As far as numbers, the current estimates are anywhere from 0.5 degrees Celsius to 1.1 degrees Celsius. And so when you think about where we're at right now, you know, sitting around 1.2, probably upwards of 1.2 degrees Celsius above the baseline, the high end of that is potentially doubling the amount of heating that we've experienced up to this point. If within a couple of years, all of a sudden we went from 1.2 to anywhere between 1.7 and 2.3, that's a huge increase in global temperature have already passed potentially two degrees Celsius just because we stopped with the industrial activity. That's a, that's heavy. And you kind of mentioned this before, but if we had that sort of a sudden spike in global temperature because we stopped emissions, there are a lot of claims that that would push the planet past the point of no return. We would do irreparable damage. We'd hit all those tipping points and accelerate those feedback loops that would just make it so that we'd end up in a really awful place. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you think about things like the Arctic, which we'll get to in a minute, but you you know, you talk about blue ocean events and the consequences of a slowing AMOC and all these different things. And then realizing you could go from where we're at right now to over two degrees Celsius, again, in a relatively short amount of time, then yeah, it's going to make those those tipping points, those consequences that much more likely to happen. And what's interesting is none of this really matters unless we lower emissions, right? If we continue to just emit like we are or increase our emissions, then the global dimming effect is never really going to be noticed. If we continue to increase emissions, then we will continue to more and more rely on that global dimming as a crutch. The The worse it's going to be when we stop emitting. It, it might be 0.5 to 1.1 degrees Celsius range right now, but in the future, that could bump up to between 1 and 2 degrees Celsius. And again, that goes back to sort of this idea of it being a catch-22. But that being said, if if we aren't going to reach the Paris climate agreements, 
if we're not going to reach those targets of 1.5 or 2, if we're never going to intentionally decrease our emissions, we're going to collapse, right? That's what the podcast is about. And a rapid decline in industrialization doesn't have to be on purpose. It can happen through collapse. And so we could collapse for a completely different reason, right? We could collapse because of severe economic issues or the EROEI of energy is too low that we can't continue in, in our current industrial processes. And so it goes to show that because of a completely unrelated issue from climate change, like our economy or energy, it could still have a triggering effect on climate change. You know, imagine collapsing because energy prices are way too high, but then also finding out that that essentially doubled the amount of warming in the atmosphere. It just creates cascading effects. Yeah, and I will say that we're talking about it here as though it's, hey, we stop emissions. And so we experience this rapid global brightening, which means we don't get all the benefits that we've had of global dimming. Suddenly, we're not seeing that cooling that we were seeing before, and we launch into a chaotic state. Or we just continue as we have been. But another option that we actually have seen to some degree is that we keep emitting all of the warming greenhouse gases while at the same time we decrease the amount of the cooling pollutants. So you may have heard of like the Clean Air Act. That was in 1970 and then it was strengthened in 1977 and later 1990. But there's a lot of evidence that sulfate aerosols have declined significantly since 1970 when that Clean Air Act was first put in place. And the the EPA has reported that between 1970 and 2005, certain air pollutants, six of them in particular, dropped by 53% in the U.S. So some have claimed that we are starting to see this global brightening. I'll read one statement here. It says, those aerosols may have masked the effects of global warming for a while. So now that we're experiencing global brightening, we're starting to see intense effects of climate change. So all of that is a long way of saying that the whole scare behind the global dimming paradox is already playing out. And the reason, in part, that things are happening faster than expected is because, at least in some areas of the world, we're not putting up as many of those reflective pollutants. And what's interesting about that timeline is that, like you had mentioned the Clean Air Act happened in 1970s. And prior to that, you know, it was post-World War II industrialization. There was a lot of development in the United States, specifically from coal, which is where those sulfate aerosols come from. And during that time, we had a relatively stable climate as far as warming went. It wasn't warming very rapidly. Clean Air Act happened and warming increased, as you explained. But what's interesting to me is that we might be having a repeat of the same exact thing happening again, but this time in developing countries like China and India, where they are very heavily reliant on coal. You know, you, you hear about or see the terrible air pollution in China, for example, and they're going through something very similar where they're starting to try and clamp down more on pollution there. And just like we did with the Clean Air Act, potentially removing those sulfates or ceasing to emit those sulfates in the same way, which may result in, again, another sort of rapid increase in warming. So this all goes back to sort of that idea that it's not as simple as it may sound up front. It's not that all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we increase by a degree, at least not necessarily. That warming may come slowly and over time, all just depending on how different regions and localities are treating the release of those sulfates. Now, we've talked here about one specific type of aerosol, which was the sulfates, but there are other types as well. 
you know, black carbon is something that comes from forest fires, and those suppress cloud formation and rain. So those actually make rain less likely, cloud formation less likely, whereas the sulfates that we've talked about from coal burning can make clouds even bigger and make them produce more rain. So different aerosols have different effects. And this is interesting because it goes to show that the impacts of this are not just necessarily on warming itself and the consequences that come from warming, but they have direct impact on other weather patterns like rain. Um, There was one article that mentioned a study that shows that rain in some parts of China actually varies weekly in tune with factory schedules. So like based on when factories are going full bore, that changes the precipitation amount in the region. And when the factories are shut down, again, the rain changes with it. Yeah, if I can jump in, one article states, global dimming has been attributed as the leading factor in the 1984 Ethiopian famine by reducing heating at the tropics, which drives the annual monsoon or wet season. And in my mind, it just means that these type of pollutants and aerosols, whether or not they have this larger net effect on global warming, they definitely have regional effects on global weirding, where temperatures and weather patterns get disrupted. In this case, rainfall in a certain area is influenced by the global dimming in another area. Yeah, the effects of global dimming are definitely not going to be spread out evenly throughout the globe. As a matter of fact, the northern hemisphere is particularly hard hit by the reversal of global dimming, by global brightening, both in the amount of heat and in the increase in precipitation. And where this is going to especially be felt is in the Arctic, where temperatures could increase by four degrees Celsius alone just by losing the protective sort of albedo effect of sulfates. And when you think about how precarious of a spot the Arctic is already in, to think about an increase in f- four degrees Celsius, that is extremely significant. You know, the Arctic already, they, they say, is warming at three times the rate that the global average is. And then adding on top of that, this intensification through the loss of global dimming could have huge impacts on the rest of the world. One thing in particular that studies mention is the worry for the AMOC and continued slowing of the AMOC, which again, we've talked about in previous episodes, but the effect of that would have on weather patterns globally, you know, that can't be overstated. Another place in which the effects will be unevenly felt, like you had mentioned, Kellen, is around cities in the Northern Hemisphere. So Obviously, cities is where the most transportation is happening, where there's all the industrialization, all the factories. And so the aerosols from those emissions are concentrated much more heavily over those cities. And so the loss of those will also make the cities themselves become much hotter, much faster. And that's scary to think about because especially if we're talking about, you know, if there were energy issues, which led to blackouts. And those blackouts led to a decrease in industrialization, which leads to an increase in temperature, you know, in a time where people might not have access to their air conditioners that they're used to in these massive cities, where it's a concrete jungle and everything is so hot, it's a it's a heat sink as is. But then to think that that's where the heating is going to be even further concentrated. You know, I just think of a city like Phoenix, <laughs> having a rapid increase in average temperature. And that's pretty terrifying. You know, we talk about all these numbers, and we talk about the complexities of this. If I try to take a step back just a little bit to make it easier for me to understand, one example that gets used is volcanoes. You know, we have record of the effects of these 
enormous volcanic eruptions. You get Mount St. Helens, you get Mount Pinatubo, where millions of tons of these pollutants are spewed into the atmosphere. The sulfur dioxide gets mixed with water vapor and it makes sulfuric acid and that ends up in the stratosphere, forms sulfate aerosols that reflect the sunlight. You hear it that way and it can all sound really technical, but it's common knowledge that when there are these massive volcanic eruptions and all this stuff gets kicked up into the sky, you then see a decrease in temperature. When we talk about some of these aerosols, these particles, these pollutants that contribute to global dimming, depending on how high up in the atmosphere they arrive, they might only last there for a matter of days or weeks. And so if all of our industrial output is pushing all this stuff up there and it's kind of shielding us, it's masking global warming by creating a cooling effect, then you can see why people get so terrified, so alarmed by the idea of us suddenly halting our emissions. I think your rather grotesque description of being impaled by a fence post is accurate in the sense that it's a bit of a paradox. It's a conundrum. Yes, we need to remove this thing that's doing damage, but the removal of that, if not done in the right way, could be fatal. And so when I think of it that way, it's hard not to feel a little more of a sense of hopelessness. You would think when you start learning about global warming that any reduction in emissions is a good thing. And while that's still generally true, to think that even stopping global emissions immediately, and maybe especially stopping it immediately, would potentially have such a huge negative impact, honestly, that's a little bit depressing. And it's obvious that it's crucial that we stop emitting, right? Like the net of the warming and the cooling is that we're getting hotter, right? It's a net warming effect. And so it's more important that we stop warming the planet even more. It just sucks that there's this terrible consequence of starting down that pathway. And that is one of the reasons why solar radiation management and geoengineering is so tempting and seems like is what inevitably is going to happen. Basically, you know, scientists or politicians or whoever look at it and say, this is a relatively cheap way of getting all the benefits of the cooling without having to have the consequences of the warming with it. We can just release the sulfates, for example, or other aerosols without having to worry about the CO2 or the methane that, that we're currently releasing with it. And again, I'm not going to go into all of the potential negatives and consequences that we talked about in the episode on solar radiation management, but really you have to think that the doing that is basically just sort of driving that fence post further and further in, right? Because if ever we had to stop releasing those aerosols, we are just climbing to a higher and higher amount of potential warming released in a very short period of time. And on top of that, we just don't know the potential consequences that those aerosols would have on weather patterns and other things throughout the world. How that could affect food and, and local climates is just still too much of an unknown. Yeah, and on that point about geoengineering, emitting all those sulfates into the lower atmosphere... If we put those into the troposphere, there's a lot of danger of seriously disrupting those weather patterns and rainfall and causing drought and even causing health problems and acid rain and stuff like that. It's been proposed that we put those sulfates much higher up in the stratosphere and that they'll last longer there and that perhaps we won't have all those same negative 
effects. But I think what you just ended your statement with goes back to what we said early on in this episode and is perhaps one of the most important call-outs in all of this, and that's that there is just still a lot of unknown. Our global system is so complex that yes, we do have a lot of smart, sophisticated models, but it seems like it's pretty much impossible to account for everything. We've had so many conversations about climate change, about all the impacts of it. We've talked about different technologies that are meant to either reduce emissions or mitigate the impacts of climate change. And if you do have a lot of hope placed in technology, that's good. Technology is great. But I think it's worth understanding this topic because clearly there's not the kind of escape plan that sometimes we hope that there is. I feel like the unknown of it all is, is the scary part to me. Because there's already just so many conflicting voices and people who want different things. And it's hard enough to come to consensus as it is on things that are relatively known. But on things like this, where there's so much unknown, knowing who's going to take the lead and make the choices that are going to have to be made at some point, that's terrifying. Especially knowing that the choices that are going to be made are going to be most likely made by those in power who want to preserve their wealth and that power and and knowing that the choices may not be in the best interest for all of society. But I'll be excited as more studies come out about this. You know, climate change is closing in on us fast. We're starting to see consequences happen more and more frequently and more intensely. That's obviously going to do nothing but continue. And in all likelihood, we're going to experience in our lifetimes many of the consequences from a loss of global dimming, whether that's rapid, whether that's more drawn out and over time. While it's all unknown right now, maybe we'll be able to look back one day and be like, oh, like that's how it all played out. It makes sense now. Whether or not any of us will be around to to do that, I don't know. Yeah, back to your question at the very beginning of this episode, how I would not like to die. It makes me think of a moment from a movie. I've mentioned that I'm a fan of Christopher Nolan movies. If you've ever seen the movie Tenet, maybe it's on my mind because we've got all of the craziness with Russia and Ukraine, and the villain in the movie is Russian. Anyways, the antagonist, the villain, Sater, I think is his name, At one point, he asks the protagonist, how would you like to die? And the protagonist answers, old. In all these conversations, isn't that really all we're advocating for? Is that people have the right to live a a long, prosperous life, die old. You know, as you're listening to this, as always, these conversations can be heavy. They can be depressing. But at least my wish for you is that despite the kind of impending doom that we're discussing, that's the outcome in your case. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.